podcast where we talk about deviant women from history, literature, mythology and contemporaneity. My name is Alicia and I'm Lauren and we are your hosts here to take you on another fascinating journey through time. Through time and space. (laughs) Time and (laughs) space. How are you this week Lauren? I'm good. Uh, It's been a long weekend so I'm feeling a little bit more rested and relaxed. Yes. But it has been busy. Yes it Um, has. Yeah how are you? I'm good. I'm uh, look I've got to admit I'm a little bit on the down this oh, weekend. Yeah. Some things happened in uh, Australian rules football <laughs> that broke my heart a little. Yeah. Uh, we are from Adelaide. Yes. For those of you who may know, we are from Adelaide. And if you're not from Australia, it was the AFL Grand Final, which is the one of the biggest sporting events of our nation's uh, sporting times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's what I would call it. As and well. our, our it's local, our Super Bowl, basically. It's our Super Bowl. And our local team, the Adelaide Chorus, they, they went, were in the grand final. And they, they choked. didn't quite make it, they didn't did really they? They do very well. No, they didn't do very they well at all. They played poorly. They did play quite poorly. But <laughs> you know what? That's all right. I still love my Crows. I'm still a big fan. <laughs> and there's always next year. There's always next year. So that's been our weekend. Yeah. And otherwise, we've spent the day today. Okay, so it's 8 p.m. here now. I think I arrived at your house at about... I was supposed to get here at 10.30. I got here about 11. Yeah, We've late. Been, Lauren, late. Well, daylight savings happened. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> was, that's true Couldn't well. get out of bed. Um, <laughs> so we've spent, what, nine hours of the day Are doing... Are you serious? Yes, nine hours. Have we spent nine hours I arrived, doing deviant women's stuff today? I arrived today? at your house nine hours ago. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh, we did eat lunch in the middle there somewhere. We did. We went out for some yeah. Subway. <laughs> we went out Subway. Oh, wow. Nine hours worth of planning of and organisation. and planning. Of plotting. You make it sound so, like, deviant. Yes, we have done a lot of plotting and planning for some future announcements. Yeah. No announcements right this second. You don't need to listen to the songs. So, uh, <laughs> but there will be more announcements You're welcome. Coming. Yeah. But I think that pretty much means that we can get on... To today, yeah, let's talk about topic. our women today. Well, I'm excited, Lauren, because this is only the second time in this uh, season, season that we've gone into the world of mythology. I just totally took over your sentence. You did. Well, you said what I was going to say. Yeah. We're going back into the realms of mythology. Yeah. And I'm excited. Yeah. And not even just mythology. We're going into the world of fairy tale this time. <gasps> Yay! <laughs> I had a lot of fun researching this topic this week because I got to read a lot of analytical stuff about fairy tales. Like I know that a lot of people enjoy reading fairy tales, watching fairy tale movies, but I really love reading critical literature about fairy tales. Tell me about it. Yeah, my entire entire PhD has been reading critical theory about fairy tales and folklore. So I had a really nerdy weekend delving into some uh, literature that I haven't been into since I finished my PhD. So it's been fun. Yeah. Fairy tales, they're one of my favourite things because they tell us so much in Mm. these condensed stories. So I'm very excited. Let's go to the world of fairy tales. Lauren. Okay, so speaking just really quickly about the critical stuff about the fairy tales. So 
In terms of where this fairy tale fits, if anyone is even remotely aware of the Arne Thompson Index, this is a, an index of like tale types or folk mm. stories, right? And it categorizes the different types of stories that we have. So if anyone does know what this means, we're talking today about the Arne Thompson 510B. 510B story. So it's a good it's a good number in the cat in the index. Introducing to you all. Arn Thompson, 510B. Better than 510A. (laughs) The story that I'm telling today is The Princess in the Suit of Leather. Have you heard of it? Uh, Yeah, in some S&M channels. I've heard a lot about The Princess in the Suit of Leather. It does actually. If you Google The Princess in the Suit of Leather, you do get to some bondage stuff actually really quickly. You also end up in Kate Middleton territory really quickly as well. When is she Um, wearing a suit of leather? I think that it's just her wearing suits. Oh, okay, sure. (laughs) Rather than leather suits. So depending on whether it's princess in a suit, you get Kate Middleton if you say princess in leather then you end up in bondage territory. Okay, sure. This is an Egyptian fairy tale, mm-hmm. but it belongs to a broader category of stories that essentially stem from Cinderella. Yeah. So we're all very familiar with the Cinderella myth, right? Yep, yep. Basically, this is the story of a, a female heroine subjected to domestic drudgery, and the tale splits then into two distinct versions. So the first one is the one that we're all familiar with. So the fact that this domestic drudgery is driven by the jealousy of the mother or more commonly the wicked stepmother. Yay! That's the Cinderella everybody knows. Well, you say everybody. Most people know. A lot of people. Yeah. Disney. Disney is the Disney version. Right? Yeah. yeah. The other version, the stepmother is entirely absent and instead we have what are more broadly called the cat skin myths. And these are driven by these unnatural sexual desires of the father. Mm-hmm. So this is where the princess in the leather suit fits. And some of you who are familiar with Charles Perrault may be aware of the story Donkey Skin. And we've also talked about Charles Perrault in one of our previous episodes when we were talking about Angela Carter's reworking of fairy tales. That's correct. And you know where? That is where I read my version. If anyone has Angela Carter's collection of fairy tales, there is a version of The Princess in the Leather Skin in that collection. It's also in Maria Tatar's collection of fairy tales as well. Excellent. So that's where you can find it. There's a go-to. There's a go-to for you. Yes. The Grimm brothers also have a version of this story called Thousand Furs. Yes. So you might know it as cat skin, donkey skin, thousand furs, or The Princess in the Suit of Leather. The reason I'm talking about The Princess in the Suit of Leather... Basically... Any version of an animal you can skin. Yeah, and wear. And put it on. That's where we are. That's where we're in the world of skinning animals. It's actually quite a horrific world. I'm against that world. <laughs> yeah. But she has good reason. We're going to get to the reason of the heroine for skinning a these A good animals. reason? That, is there ever a good reason to I skin an animal, Lauren? unnatural sexual desires of the father might be <laughs> high on that list of reasons. Like, I don't know. But we'll get there. We'll get to that. Okay. We'll get to that. Basically, though, the reason I've chosen the princess in the suit of leather is this Egyptian version of the myth, I think, is the one that has the most kind of powerful and resilient and resourceful protagonist. Yeah. In some of the other versions, particularly in the more Cinderella versions of the myth, the princess remains relatively passive. So Yeah, we're so used to Cinderella just being sort of like, 
at the butt of everybody else's whims. Everybody else yeah. tells her what to do. And even when she gets to the good stuff, it's still because there's another force helping her exactly. out. Exactly. There's usually the interception of like a fairy godmother yeah. who comes along and tells her what to do or helps her out. Then, of course, the prince comes along and he's the one who searches for her. She doesn't search for him. You know, all these kinds of things. So this version, however, we have not only is the princess so active compared to most other princesses in fairy tales but all of the other female characters in the story are really active as well Mm. and drive the entire plot there's actually virtually no male agency in this story at all so it's really interesting just in that sense on its own so i don't know if i really want to go into too much more of the breaking down of it just yet because i think that we should actually tell the story of the princess in the suit of leather first let's do it we can come we can talk about we can talk about all of my problems with skinning animals at the end yes and we they will make sense in context okay all right so in a kingdom which is apparently neither here nor there but of course we are in egypt at this particular moment. <laughs> so we're specifically here and there. And in Egypt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was a king, of course. And this king had a wife and a daughter, and he adored them both tremendously, as they always do. And of course, what do you think is going to happen? I'm going to say that the mother is going to die. Of course she does. Because that's step number one in mother time. must die. Yes. And that is, of course, what does happen. Mother mm-hmm. dies. Yep. The king is very much in grief. Yeah. This is terrible. He's bereaved. He's very bereaved. When the mother died, She left these instructions of, well, I'll call them instructions, but really this sort of request. Look, if you're going to remarry. Because you're a king and you're going to. You have to. You pretty much have to. You're going to need a queen. Yes. And also you need a son. Yeah, you need an heir. That's a more important motive in the French version, donkey skin, than it is in this story. But anyway. Also, I will just say these stories are all very similar to one another, Mm. but there are some important differences. So I might point out some of the differences as we go along. Basically, the queen is like, if you can find another as perfect as me, you may marry her. And the, the way that you will know is that she will be the only one in the kingdom who will fit into my anklet. Mm. So a year passes, his daughter barely reaches womanhood, and the king decides it's time for a new wife. So he employs a matchmaker, this old curmudgeonly woman matchmaker who's going to search the kingdom far and wide for a suitable bride. And it doesn't really even matter what her station is, of course, so long as this anklet fits her perfectly. There are so many issues with this. Like an anklet, (laughs) seriously, but like an anklet can fit many people, I feel. Yes. An anklet, you know? Yeah. It's not... Most anklets come in like one size fits exactly, all. Exactly, this is what I'm thinking. Or like two or three how different did, sizes. How many different sizes can an anklet possibly come well, in? Apparently, this queen must have had such either tremendously slender ankles that yeah. no one can, or quite robust ankles. Is it an anklet that has a clasp, or do you have to pull it up over your foot? Good point. I would imagine <laughs> it must have a clasp because if you're pulling These it up over your foot, I mean, yeah, we will never know. These are the details that get lost in the oral traditions right. of fairy tales. But, but for whatever reason, this anklet is not going to fit <laughs> anybody but the one important person. That's right. So the old woman goes off with her posse of old women and they search far and wide for the worthy woman. And of course, they can't find anybody. Despairingly, they realize that there is one person left that they have not checked. So the matchmaker's like, all right. We'll go to the palace. We'll just check the princess. We have to. We just better make sure we better we've make covered sure. all our bases. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And what do you know? I'm going to say it fits. The ankle fits. Mm. Yes. Mm-hmm. So 
They run straight to the king and they say, we have visited every maiden in the kingdom, but none was able to squeeze her foot into the late queen's anklet. None, that is. Oh, squeeze her foot. Squeeze her foot. There you so go. There's no exact word. I'm quoting that. Exactly. So there's no class. No. It has to go over the it's foot. It's over the foot. Mm-hmm. None was able to squeeze her foot into the late queen's anklet. None, that is, except the princess, your daughter. She wears it as easily as if it were her own. <gasps> then she goes on to say, why not marry the princess? Why give her to a stranger and deprive yourself? Firstly, ew. (laughs) Secondly, ew. Ew. (laughs) The king, one might think, would be like, um, ew, no. Obviously, I'm not going to do that. But, interestingly though, because we've talked about Egyptian marrying into families before in the real historical world. That's true. So there's also that point. There is, but that also belongs to a different point of Egypt's cultural history. History, yeah. You know, the, yeah. The, when we're talking about ancient Egyptians, it's yeah. a different morality, different religion. Yeah. This story belongs to more of a Middle Ages morality. Yeah. So two different situations, although, yes, of course, there is a history of... Keeping it in the family. Keeping it in the family. (laughs) So, no, of course, he doesn't even seem to rebuke her even for a second. It's not even like he's mildly disturbed by this proposition, but it's like, oh, well, I guess. I mean, what options are there? I did promise my wife that I would only marry the woman who fits this anklet. Instead, he's just like, yeah, great. (laughs) Send for the marriage contract to be drawn up. Yep. But he must know how revolting this proposition is because. He declares that the marriage must remain a secret from the princess. So she can be told that she's been betrothed, that her wedding day is approaching, but the identity of the groom must be withheld. So by that logic, you you know that he must be aware of the fact that she's going to be... Upset? Yes. Yeah. Quite. Yes. But isn't she also going to be suspicious? Because she knows her dad's out looking for a wife. And then suddenly it's like, oh, by the way, you're getting married to but, someone and can't tell you who. But I think that because she's... Definitely has, not dad. <laughs> because she's just reached womanhood, I think she'd probably be expecting... It's logical anyway. Yeah, yeah. it's like, oh, shit, I've got my period. I guess I'm going to get <laughs> married very soon. Going to be forced to pump out some babies yeah. ASAP. So she'd be like, oh, what a coincidence. Hey, dad, wouldn't it be so funny if we got married at the same time? We could have like a double we wedding. A double wedding. Oh, we my could, God. That'd be so cute. Wouldn't adorable. Be cute? A daddy-daughter double wedding. Yeah. Ew. (laughs) So everyone in the kingdom is very busy, bustling away, preparing for the festivities, including the minister's daughter, who comes to admire the princess in her wedding getup. But when she does, she makes a little bit of a Freudian slip. She notices that the princess doesn't seem too happy about the upcoming nuptials and comments that she should be happy. I mean, she's marrying a king after (gasps) all. How much better can it get? So this is a little bit like what you were just saying. Yeah. Right? Then... The princess is like, okay, hang on, wait up. What do you mean a king? Mm-hmm. I suppose she's expecting to marry a prince. Yeah. Right? What do you mean a king? The minister's daughter kind of stumbles, like, oh. I've put my foot in it now. Awkward. So the princess offers her gold bracelet in exchange for information. So the minister's daughter Does lets Does the bracelet up. have a clasp? <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> I have to let this go. <laughs> Probably not. Okay. All Probably right. not. Mm-hmm. It's a gold bracelet. No clasp. No clasp. She hands it over and the minister's daughter's like, yeah, game's up. You're marrying your dad. Just Mm. FYI. (laughs) So the princess turns white, as you would, 
shaken a little bit. She's, I think, the has description. Has a vomit in the bathroom. Yeah, well, the description in the fairy tale is that it's as though she has like 40 fevers. Uh huh. <laughs> so a, that's about a bad reaction. Amount, yeah. As uh-huh. you would, though. Now, here's where this story, as I said, this version of the myth, the princess is far more active, resilient, yeah. resourceful than in some of the other versions. In Donkey Skin, we're basically the same up until this point. It's a ring instead of an anklet, if those kinds of details matter to you. Yeah. Basically the same up till here. Here, though, the princess gets her fairy godmother come along, and the fairy godmother tells her, you know what, you should stall. Yeah. Stall for time. Stall for time. Request a dress the color of the sun. Request a dress the color of the moon. The dad has these dresses made. And then she's like, oh, no, now what do I do? St- and the stars. And the, the stars. And the night the sky. Night, yeah, the celestial and the sun and then so the king in donkey skin not in this egyptian version in donkey skin the king has this magical donkey that literally shits gold yeah it does doesn't it <laughs> yes <laughs> okay so the dung of the donkey is gold so this donkey is responsible for a lot of the king's wealth and so the princess is like he'll never give up his donkey this is a sure bet if i ask for a dress made of the donkey skin i will be free from this marriage. Well, actually the fairy godmother suggests that importantly. Then the king calls her bluff and slaughters the donkey. And that's why she's called donkey skin. She ends up with the donkey skin dress. This version, however, we don't have a fairy godmother. This is the princess acting all on her own. So she turns white, gets a bit feverish, a bit shaky, then runs onto the terrace, leaps over the palace walls and lands in a tanner's yard. And she's like, I'm out of here. I'm, yeah, I'm the like, fuck out of here. Noping the fuck away. Getting out. Getting out. <laughs> Immediately. Yeah. She vaults over that ledge. She is yeah. gone. She goes to the tanner and gives him her gold and is like, make me a suit of leather. I want a suit of leather by the morning. I will give you all this gold, but it has to disguise all of me. So basically everything covered except my eyes. Mm-hmm. And so the tanner's like, fucking excellent. I'll take your gold. He sets his whole family to work overnight. They make this suit of leather. So in the morning, the princess arrives back at the tanner's house and picks up her new suit of leather. But really, this is a disgusting pile of hides. Yeah. She looks slovenly, horrendous, probably smells. Yeah, a lot like dead animals. And also let's remember that this is Egypt. Mm. Egypt is hot. Mm -hmm. Leather is not... It don't breathe. This is not weather-appropriate attire. So I imagine she probably would start to smell after a little while. I would say so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Bit gross. But very good disguise. Meanwhile, the king goes to his daughter's chambers on the day of the wedding to find her gone. So he sends his men out to find her. They do stumble upon her that morning in the street. But remember that she's in her disguise. She's like a disgusting, hovelly old lady, yeah. according to them. And they ask if, if she had seen the princess. And she answers, my name is Juleda for my coat of skins. My eyes are weak. My sight is dim. My ears are deaf. I cannot hear. I care for no one far or near. If she can't hear. Yes. Uh, yes. I know. This is a logical <laughs> how did, problem. How did she hear the mask of the question? I know. This problem comes up a few times um, <laughs> because, of course, she's not really deaf. So she can hear. Maybe she's just like, I'm hard of hearing. Yeah, maybe that's what maybe she means. Maybe she's not completely deaf. Yeah. She's just like, mm, I can't. Look, my left one's no good. Yeah. Talking the right. She does say my eyes are weak. My sight is dim. So maybe she means the same with her ears. Her hearing is dim. Yeah. 
It's not the best. <laughs> not the best, but I heard you ask that question. Yeah. Thanks very much. Yeah. yeah. But I wouldn't hear a princess running if she passed me. Yeah, wouldn't have, yeah, wouldn't have a clue. Wouldn't have seen that. No. Yeah. So she knows based on the proximity of the men that she's really got to get the fuck out of the city. So, so when the city gates open in the morning, she fled crosses the countryside for days until she comes upon another city. She's so tired when she arrives, she collapses beneath the palace walls. And it turns out her resting place was right beneath the women's quarters, the harem of the Sultan's palace. Probably not a great place to rest, but that's where she's resting. A slave- Especially if you're a stinky, leather-clad lady. Well, this is the thing. A slave girl looks out the window and sees this heap of disgusting leather-clad thing out of the window and she's like terrified she leaps in fright and she's calls the queen to the window crying about this monster she says that it's an afrit which is a cunning spirit of the jinn world mm. and the queen's like all right let me see this afrit uh goes to the window looks down and it's like oh my god that's amazing demands that the creature be brought up oh that's what you do with the creature that's what you do with a like a, a demonic creature oh it Br- gets better bring me that there's a demonic creature it gets better So the queen brings the demonic creature into the chambers and asks who this monster might be. And of course she replies, my name is Julada for my coat of skins. My eyes are weak. My sight is dim. My ears are deaf. Although I heard you a question. I care for no one. Far or near. Yes. And the queen isn't like, but how did you respond if you... um, (laughs) Yeah, no one's questioning it. Instead, she thinks this is hilarious and amazing and decides that your leader should be put to work in the palace because that would be really entertaining for everybody oh yeah that's a great idea yeah let's humiliate this poor deaf blind monster woman. Yeah. yeah basically i'm going to make you my kitchen hand slash court jester mm-hmm. because that's what royalty does yeah you know we've we've come across that yeah. before as well but your leader is in no position to deny this kind of help so she takes her up on the offer and is sent to work in the kitchens as a skivvy so skivvies feed the fires and rake out the ashes they also keep your neck really warm in the winter time <laughs> but yes the ashes yeah i was gonna say this is another crossover point of the cinderella myth so this is the domestic drudgery part of the story, but of course it's not a wicked stepmother here. We've just got this queen, yeah, right? She also is going to act as the queen's jester and be sent to entertain her whenever the queen feels like she needs a bit of a laugh. But what's she going to do? I don't Stand know. Stand there in her in- smelly ugliness? Exactly. I don't really know. It's not it's- that entertaining. No. It's not like she's juggling or anything. And she's- Does she have any tricks? She says that she can't see or hear anything, so you she's wouldn't a- think she'd be a very good comedian. She's going to stand there yeah. and everyone's going to point and laugh. I think that they're laughing. Let's remember how much value fairy tales put on beauty. Yes. Right? On physical beauty. So I think just the fact that she is hideous in these leather skins makes her hilarious. Yeah. Because she is, you know, monstrous. Yeah. I love laughing at ugly people. Oh, I do it all the time. It's, it's how I pass the time. Yeah. Yeah. We mm-hmm. just stand on the side of the road. Yeah. Oh, point, my God. Just oh point God. out what people oh are wearing. Yeah, oh my God. Yeah. yeah. Good times had by all. <laughs> so one day, the vizier, the chief courtier, sends word that all the women in the harem are invited to a party. How exciting. Oh, a party. This also sounds familiar. A little bit familiar. Yeah. Yes. So the queen asks if Jaleda would like to come, but she replies, unsurprisingly... My dear, she, but hang on, she's just asking her for shits and giggles. Like she's not genuinely asking her, right? It's like, oh it's, yeah, she's asking, like, would you like to come and entertain everybody at the party? But it's like, also like that bitchy mean yeah. girl thing of like setting someone up, you know? Yeah. Like, why don't you come to the party? <laughs> <laughs> it's like the carry. Then we'll pour pig's blood on you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess in that sense, she's a little bit like 
She's not as not nearly as wicked as the wicked stepmother in the original Cinderella tale. I kind of feel like the queen is, even though she's problematic, is a much better. She's not being an outright. She's not a total bitch. Yeah, she's not being an out and out. I bitch. thought it was nice of her to invite her to the party. Oh, well, I was maybe like, she was if being you're nice. ashamed of her, then you'd keep her in the kitchens and be like, "Don't come, Jaleda, you are not allowed." All right, maybe she's being nice. We'll give her nice. the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to give her okay, the benefit sure. of the doubt. So, of course, she replies in her. Familiar refrain, etc., etc. My ears are deaf. I cannot hear. I care for no one far or near. Right. So the party's cranking. There's feasting. There's merriment. Everyone's having a great time. And then a woman enters, and everybody <gasps> stops. Stop. She's so beautiful. She's so fucking beautiful and amazing. Oh my god. Tall. And I bet you she's in a fancy fucking dress. Yeah, of course she is. She's wearing a beautiful dress. She's got a face like a rose and silks and jewels. She looks like she could be royalty. She's so amazing. Mm-hmm. And everyone's obsessed with her. And they all want to crowd around her. In fact, they're kind of bickering and elbowing each other out of the way so that they can all be the ones to sit next to this beautiful, mysterious woman. So who is this beautiful, mysterious stranger, you might ask? I don't know. I've got no idea. She's who could from nowhere. Oh, my God, Alicia. It's Jaleda. Oh, bullshit. She took off her skin. Are you are you kidding me? So this is actually I kind did of, not see that coming. This is kind of a reverse Cinderella in that instead of like, well, she does put on the dress, but this is more emphasizing the taking off of the ugliness. You know, she's already beautiful. She's just disguising her beauty yeah. with ugliness. Whereas Cinderella, you kind of get more of the sense that the fairy godmother makes her beautiful. Yes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, it's sort of like a reverse situation here. But anyway, regardless, of course, this is the princess in disguise at the party being very beautiful. Everyone loves her so much. But as dawn nears, Juleda realizes that she has to get back to the kitchen before anyone notices that she's gone. So she's not going to get turned back into ugly old Mm. Cinderella. But she does need to be Juleda of the leather suit again. Otherwise, everyone's going to the, – the kitchen staff will all wake up and they'll realise that she's not there. Yeah. Questions will be raised and it's going to cause a whole thing. But I don't think anyone's going to automatically put two and two together and be like, hey, she's not – she hasn't She hasn't rocked up for work. I bet you she turns out to be that beautiful woman. stranger. Who was at that party last night. <laughs> but you know how she gets away? Because remember how I said everyone was flocked around her because they're all obsessed with her? Oh, yeah. How does she get away? She scatters a handful of gold sequins on the ground and everyone just like flocks over them and she runs away oh, while they're distracted. Wow. So we've got... A Is quite- this something that you do in Assassin's Creed where you want to get out of a, a crowd? This a- <laughs> Maybe that's where they took that from. Yeah. Everyone's so superficial in this story. <laughs> <laughs> the queen was so infatuated by this mystery woman that she told her son, the prince, all about her, praising her beauty and charm so much that the prince couldn't help but kind of fall for him, her, himself. That's what I meant to say. So he decides they're going to have another party tonight. These chicks are on it, right? Yeah, they're going to trap that damn beautiful woman. He's going to hang out just outside the doors of the next night's entertainment so that when this mystery woman leaves, he can grab her and find out who she is. That's not creepy at all. No. Accosting a woman as she leaves She's the like, party. Who are you? I grab her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's perfectly natural. So once again, as, as the night draws near, all the women of the harem get ready and Julita refuses their invitation. But of course, as soon as they're out of sight, whips off those leathers, off she goes to the party. 
So everyone this time is really trying to find out who she is. Where are you from, beautiful mystery woman? Who is your father? But she's giving no direct answers, just like throwing them off time and time again. This time, instead of scattering gold sequins to distract everybody to flee, she throws pearls on the floor to make her escape. Oh, so yeah. up in the ante. Yeah. As she flees through the doors, the prince is waiting. He blocks her path and demands to know who her father is. But she refuses, and so he grabs her. He has to know who is your father, mystery woman. But she kind of fights back. And in the struggle, she manages to pull the prince's ring from his finger. Oh, And then she runs away. And as she runs away, she cries out, I live in the land of paddles and ladles. Cryptic. Yeah, real cryptic. Real cryptic. Cryptic enough that the prince the next day announces he's leaving on a quest to discover the land of paddles and ladles. Oh, you fool. He's not a very bright one, is he? Oh, (laughs) yeah. with riddles well i mean i think this is actually supposed to demonstrate her intelligence i think i'm gonna just i'm just gonna implement more riddles in my life on a daily basis like when i'm at the checkout buying something and somebody asks me if i want to pay on paywave or with cash i'm just gonna come up with some kind of riddle i cannot pay (laughs) rather than like answer the question on my card today (laughs) for i have no money on my way Make up general yeah. general riddles. And then throw sequins and run and away. Then, <laughs> and then take my bag of shopping and but run. But for real, though, I think that the – like, she's using wordplay to yes. distract everybody, which actually, even though it, some of her riddles sound a little bit silly, but they actually really are – she's using her wits, yes. not her her beauty or whatever, to alter events. To manipulate the situation exactly, to yeah. her, yeah. So actually – Yes, even though this is a little bit, it's not particularly cryptic, but I think that it's supposed to demonstrate that she is not just a beautiful, mysterious Mm. woman. She is actually somebody who's intelligent and resourceful and witty, Yeah, if you can call that witty, but you know. But I definitely do want to channel this in my life, though, and just make my whole life riddles and throwing things in people's faces. (laughs) Just riddle, throw things at them, run away. away. (laughs) That'll probably get you out of some parking fines. (laughs) Sure. So the prince is going to go on this trip. His mother manages to persuade him to delay departure for enough time to help get some provisions, right? That's important. You don't want to go off into the, you know, wilderness of Egypt without some sandwiches and some tea, right? Definitely not. So the kitchen becomes super busy getting everything ready for the prince's trip. Now, Jalada's duties normally are cleaning, sweeping, carrying ash, not cooking. That's actually a higher duty, but... She demands to be allowed to contribute to this, you know, the provisions for the quest. And after initially rebuking her, the cook finally allows her, sure, all right, have some dough, make a cake or something, (laughs) all right? Just go over there, shut up, make a cake. But, I mean, Juliette is a princess. She actually wouldn't know how how to cook. cook. No. And it shows. She makes this really shitty cake. But inside of it, she bakes the prince's ring. Ayy. Ayy. Yeah. So here we have a reverse, again, Cinderella's shoe, the prince's ring. But once in this case, it's actually the princess using a possession of the The princess to get his attention as opposed to being the other way around, the prince using the princess's possession to track her down so Mm. just want to point that out a little bit of female initiative initiative a little bit of initiative here so the prince is off with his men and his rations seeking the land of paddles and ladles (laughs) this is stupid anyway 
But the day grows hot and they are tired, so they stop to rest. And a servant saw Jalada's shitty little cake sitting atop all the other good ones and went to throw it away. But the prince stopped him. He's like, hey, come on, man. Jalada made that. She's all right. Yeah. Leather lady. She gave it a, a shot. She gave it a red hot go. She's a misshapen monster. Give her a break. What a nice prince. Actually, yeah. That's a really nice thing to... It's most considerate. princes would be like, chuck that shit Especially out. Especially because, you know, his servants are the one who are going to chuck. He's like, no, I'll eat the shit cake. Aww. I'll do that. What a nice guy. Yeah. So, of course, what happens? He breaks open the shit cake to eat it, and inside it's his ring. He's like, what the hey? He's like, oh, my God. Mind blown. Oh, my fucking God. How did this get in here? I know where the land of paddles and ladles is. It was a riddle. It was a riddle. My princess. She's so smart. This whole time she outsmarted me. Yeah, that's right. She outsmarted the prince. That's not something the princesses commonly do. Just... Just no, so you know. Just, just note that. FYI. Just note that. Again, this all seems like really minor little actions, but we really just need to keep them in the context of what traditional fairy tales are hmm. like. <laughs> so these are actually really quite significant yeah, yeah. changes to the traditional stories. So, so the prince rushes home and he's like, Mum, I want my supper. But he refuses to eat his supper unless it's Julita who cooks it for him. And his mother's like, just eat, my son. You must eat. He's like, Why do you no. want to eat that stuff that that gross leather well, lady makes? Well, she doesn't makes. say that. She just thinks she's just concerned for his well-being. Oh, okay. Yeah. We've established that she's not that she's bad. She's not that bad. Yeah. Yeah. She's not a wicked stepmother. Sorry. My bad. Yeah. But of course, Julita comes in, in her suit of leather, balancing the tray on her head. Because I imagine she probably has quite limited mobility with that suit of leather. The fairy tale says she's balancing it on her head. She trips up the first time. Fucks it up, goes back to the kitchen, and the prince is like, no, 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 no. Get your litter again. Try again. This time, two servants help her balance the tray of food on her head. When she gets into the room, the prince sends the other servants away. And he's like, approach me, dear Julita. And of course, what does she reply? She replies, my name is Julita for my coat of skins. My eyes are weak. My sight is dim. My ears are deaf. I cannot hear. I care for no one far or near. The prince tells her to come and fill up his cup. And so she approaches very close. He has a knife. Oh. And as she nears... Things have taken a turn. As, yeah, don't worry. It's going to be okay. He's got a knife her. He's, it's going to be okay. okay. She's wearing a suit of leather, remember? Oh, yeah, right. Cool. So he slashes the suit of leather and the leather comes off. And underneath... Was she wearing any underwear? I don't know. Because awkward. Okay, it's a suit of leather. You've got to have something on underneath. Yeah. Otherwise, like, chafe city. Yeah, she's just standing there butt naked now. Especially in Egypt. Mm. I imagine she's got some muslin underneath. Okay, great. Let's just imagine that. She has to. Otherwise, she'd be sweating up the town. Yes. It'd be very uncomfortable. Yeah. She wouldn't be able to walk with all of the chafing. (laughs) Just a bunch of savlon on there (laughs) all the time. But anyway, yeah, he does. I mean, he has sent everybody else away. Nonetheless, he does still, yeah literally remove her clothes from her body, which is a little bit of a dick move on, let's say. That's really, that's actually really quite horrible. It is. That's like her, that's her thing. She owns, that's her possession. She owns that. Her leather skin. Those yes. are her leather skins. She gave him no permission I mean, he to. he could have just asked. He could have just said, hey. Like, I found the ring. I know yeah. who you are. How about we get rid of this get up. Let's just get to know each other as two people, yeah. man. I'm sorry, this is a dick move, yeah. <laughs> it okay. is a dick move. But also it is a fairy tale and there's lots of dicks in fairy tales. This so. is very true. <laughs> 
And of course, he finds beneath the leather skins this woman, this beautiful mystery woman. He's so excited. And then Jolita hides in the corner of the room. So, of course, she's probably a little bit affronted by... And, and a little bit naked. And a little bit naked. While he sends for the queen. So the queen comes up to the room, sees the pile of leathers on the ground, and she assumes that he's murdered her. <laughs> For well, failing to bring his supper. Oh, I was going like, to make the same assumption. Yeah, come on. She didn't deserve that. I mean, you can punish her, sure. But really, did you have to kill her? That's pretty outrageous. That's pretty son. extreme. That's a bit extreme. But then she sees a Jolita emerges into the room and everything's fine. The queen is also incredibly taken aback by how beautiful and amazing she is and is overjoyed like the queen is so happy that this mystery woman the whole time was julita she's like oh shit that's excellent because you are exactly the woman that i want my son to end up with she was the one really who orchestrated everything she was the one who planted the seed in the prince's head that this mystery woman was the one that he should marry you know so she saw her beauty and her charm her wit and her intelligence at the party and was like that's the chick she then planted the seed in the prince's mind. The prince didn't even meet Julita at the party. He That's, just stood yeah. for her out, waiting for her outside. Yeah. He fell in love with her because of what his mum told him about he her. He fell in love with the idea of her. He did. And then Classic. probably her naked body when he stripped all of those leathers yeah, off of her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Things move pretty quickly. One might not be surprised to see that they get married. And look, Julita seems to be happy with this. She she certainly doesn't complain. And I think we can assume that because she put the ring in the prince's cake that she was a bit keen on him too. So I don't want to assume that this is just another case of, oh, shit, he got me. No, well, she followed it up. She was the one who planted the ring. Yeah. Yeah. So I think she's like, oh, yeah, that prince guy. I do want him, even though he grabbed her and she, I think the reason that she ran away was because she had to get back before they realized she was gone. But the other thing as well, though, is that in marrying someone else, it also means she never has to marry her father. Well, yeah. Doesn't it? Because the end of the story. Ooh, we're yeah, getting to the end. We don't end at the wedding. We end just after the wedding. Because, of course, the king is still out with his men searching for his daughter. I knew this was going to happen. I knew this was coming back. And he comes upon this new happy kingdom where the prince and his new princess are like having a great time, but he doesn't want to stay long. He's got a quest. Yes. He's a man on a mission. But Julita's like, no, I really insist dear husband that you make him stay for dinner. (gasps) So the prince convinces the king to stay, even though the king's like, no, 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 I really must be on my way. I don't want to uh, hold you up. Don't want to impose myself on your hospitality. And then the prince is like, no, 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 you are my guest. It is my pleasure. Please dine with us. So he does. The princess also convinces her husband to allow her to wear his clothes and attend dinner in disguise. Yeah. So she's not done with her days of disguise just yet. I like where this is going. Yeah. At dinner, after coffee, of course. (laughs) After Uh, coffee and cake. It is actually in the fairy tale that it's after coffee. (laughs) I'm not even making that up. (laughs) Jolita asks everyone to share stories to help pass the time. But of course, she offers her own first. You know, you don't want to impede on others what you're not willing to do yourself. So she tells the story, this incredible story of an incestuous father and his cunning daughter. And then at the end, she says to him, I am your daughter, the princess, upon whom all these troubles fell through the words of this 
old sinner and daughter of shame. I should also mention that the king has been carrying the old woman matchmaker in chains with him on the quest for some reason. So the old woman is also at dinner in chains. I forgot what? to mention that detail. <laughs> yes. That seems like an important detail, Lauren. It is an important detail because... So they tell this to the king. We don't really get very much of the king's reaction. In the morning, they flung the old woman over a tall cliff into the ravine. Wait, this escalated quickly. It escalates so quickly. This ending happens in like literally four lines at the end of the fairy tale. What? It's not a very good revenge story. Then the king, he gives half of his kingdom to his daughter and the prince. And everyone lives in happiness and contentment until death. Not the old lady got thrown off over the ravine. And that's the point of the story when I was like, wait, what? Because you you set up this dinner so well and now you're just going to let your dad get away with this? Because, okay, do you want to jump into some analysing of this? Yeah, I'd love to. Let's do it. Okay, so let, you know how we said that the wicked stepmother is typically the, the villain, villain of the story? Right? And fathers are actually really absent in many fairy tales. And when they do exist, they are... You know, in these roles of kings, they're these benevolent, wise authorities who reign with these light touches, but they're not particularly good, not particularly bad. Mm. They're just... And usually when when they do wrong, they're manipulated by a female influence. Exactly. So the father's failure to, say, protect Cinderella from the, the wicked stepmother is because he's under her thumb as well. It's not his fault. Or absent. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. In this story, of course, is one of the really rare instances of having the father as the villain of the story. Mm. And these stories don't exist very often, although according to um, Marion Cox, who in the 19th century studied 345 variants of the Cinderella myth, so there's quite a lot of them, 130 belong to the Cinderella version, which has the wicked stepmother, and 77 of them belong to the catskin, which has the unnatural desires of the father version. So, okay, 130 versus 77 Obviously, one number is much bigger than the other, but 77 is not a small number. No. And it doesn't necessarily account for why this version of the myth really isn't well known. I didn't read Donkey Skin until like only a few years ago. I didn't know of this story until my adulthood. I certainly didn't hear it in childhood. One of the proposed reasons for this is the fact that it has this villainous father and it's not women. Women in fairy tales are typically very submissive and meek and passive and obedient or if they show any other traits like intelligence or cunning or ambition god forbid they have ambition they are of course the wicked stepmother Mm, they're the the villain the ogress the witch yeah etc right and that's not happening in this story and so some versions of the catskin story end up blaming the women anyway. So even though it is the fathers who have these unnatural, horrible desires, there's this weird logic that exonerates them because these desires are tied to these kind of promises that they make to marry, you know, I will only marry the woman that my dead wife so it's either the dead former wife who has set the expectation too high yes. and she's to blame 
Or it's somebody like the old woman matchmaker in this story who is the one who has led him into this temptation. Yes, she should never have discovered that it was the daughter. Exactly. So there's these loopholes that kind of bring alleviate it them from the guilt. Yeah, they alleviate the father and they bring it back to blame exactly. on old, poor old woman. Yeah, and that's messed up. So <laughs> this story, I think, does that the least. I think that the father remains the most... Or actually... Donkey skin, the king is pretty villainous as well. But again, that puts much more of an emphasis on the dead mother and Mm -hmm. it removes a lot of agency from the daughter by having like the intervention of the fairy godmother. So I think this particular version of the story is the one that still remains, the king remains really kind of an ambiguous figure and also much more of a negative influence. He, He doesn't actually redeem himself. Even though the blame is cast onto the old woman, the only thing that he does, he gives half his kingdom to the princess. But that's not really admission of guilt. It's not – he's not kind of letting himself out of it in the same way that happens in some of the other versions. So that's gross. <laughs> so you were mentioning how you weren't aware of donkey skin until a few years ago. Yeah. And that obviously you grew up with the Cinderella version anyway. Mm. So as a child of the 80s, <laughs> I – grew up with the Sapsorrow version of this story mm. and the Sapsorrow sorry version of Cinderella, which comes from Jim Henson yeah, yeah. and Jim Henson's series of The Storyteller, which starred John Hurt and a puppet <laughs> dog and was my favourite thing in the world and we used to borrow those videos out from the video store, seriously, like every weekend. I was like, <laughs> I want The Storyteller. And in The Storyteller... There is a version of this story under the guise of Sapsorrow, and yeah. it's the donkey skin version, or it's the Tatterskins version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in this Which one, is, I think, the Grimm's version. It's like the old skins. It's like a whole bunch of different animals, yes, I think. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think there's another name for this story that's like all fur and feathers or something yeah, like that. Yeah, there is, yes. And so this same story of wearing the coat of animals comes yeah. up again and again and again. And in that particular version, she, the same thing, the mother dies, the mother's ring is what yeah. needs to fit not the anklet. Yeah. And she accidentally slips the ring on and lo and behold, it fits her. Yeah. And the father is reluctant Mm. to marry her. He's upset by it. He's devastated, but he blames her for slipping the ring on. Yeah. It's her fault. Why did you put it on? Yeah. You should never have put it on. So the blame kind of does go back on to to her. Yeah. Goes back onto her because she should never have touched it. Yeah. But he is reluctant, but he agrees. He He still still does it. He still agrees. Because that's it. It's still. So it's interesting the way that these stories have changed over time because it seems that the original, older, oral versions of the stories are a little bit more ambiguous with the morality, whereas it's this kind of Victorian era I think when they started to actually get put on paper and they started to become aware of what are the messages that we actually want children to hear well you know what kind of a father wants to read his daughter a bedtime story about an evil unnaturally like desiring father who has a disobedient independent daughter who is ultimately the one who upholds the rules of society you know so traditionally fathers in fairy tales are lawmakers they're strong and level-headed which is i guess what they're kind of drawing on on that sap sorrow version he's still trying to be level-headed i imagine but yeah trying to be reasonable yeah yeah but here yeah we have these women disobeying and i guess the thing about 
<laughs> the thing about this story that's kind of deviant is the fact that it's the disobedience of the daughter that allows everything to happen. You know, that's not typically the catalyst for events in fairy tales. Fairy tales reward good, pure girls with marriage. But in order to receive your reward, usually somebody has to make a mistake. Yeah, but you're also usually the victim of somebody else's villainy. Mm. And you get out of that victimhood by some kind of magical intervention. Whereas in this story, it's literal disobedience. It's the daughter saying no to the father. And if we take this at a really big symbolic level, what we're really talking about here is kind of like this daughter who is like fiercely denying the defiance of patriarchal power. Because, okay, yeah, I'm going there. Let's do it. Let's Let's take it. it. Just take it there. Because when we're talking about incest, that is so bound up with power, you know? Like research, I was reading, research shows that in families with incest, it's often driven by men who have a power complex. So it's not just about desire. It is about this control over your household, control over your children, control over your women. And for a daughter to run away from that is an active defiance of that patriarchal will, even though that patriarchal will has been taken to the extreme Mm. because daughters should be submissive and obedient, particularly to their father until they're married, you know, when this exchange is made. And if you you marry your father... You never leave that rule. Yeah, yeah. So, like, an incestuous marriage kind of, like, surpasses these expectations of the daughter's duty. This is the daughter's duty taken to the total extreme because she's being expected to enter with her father into the taboo, you know. But if she's a good daughter, really, she should be going there with him. Mm. And instead she's saying, like, no, I'm going to be the moral one. And my morality, upholding this version of morality means deviating from my social expectations of being a good daughter. And that's why I think these stories were particularly dangerous, you know, because really we're talking about girls defying the the will of their fathers. Yeah, and if we think about the fairy tales that we are more familiar with now, they're not the versions that we receive now are 200 years old, Yeah, if that. Yeah. They're drawn from this body of folktale and folklore and myth that, exists back into the dark ages yeah. and beyond. Yeah. But the versions that we receive are the sanitized exactly. versions. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean they're still they're still gruesome. They're still horrific. gruesome. And, and the I Disney mean, versions are f- even more sa- sanitized. Like although next level sanitizing. Tell you what though, did watch The Little Mermaid with my friend's six year old not that long ago. And I was like happily just like, yeah, everything's sweet. She did freak out at Ursula. And yeah. I was like, okay, maybe this is not. But let's the- think about the original. <laughs> so they're actually, but they're actually, so I'd just like to say <laughs> they're still quite terrifying for six-year-olds. So there you go. But The Little Mermaid doesn't end up with crippled, deformed no. feet. Yeah, the little the, the, the Disney version. The Little Mermaid <laughs> dies in the Hans Christian yeah, Andersen yeah. version. So, I, I mean. With, it's mutilated. Even these early versions of a lot of these fairy tales that were written more recently are still quite yeah violent and horrific, but they have still been yeah, sanitized. Yeah. 
So at the end of the Charles Perrault version, because he always added morals to the end. Wait, well, maybe he didn't. I think the morals were added afterwards. Okay. But anyway, they there come are with, morals at the end of the Perrault version. They come versions. with morals. Um, and the one at the end of the Perrault version of Donkey Skin is quite interesting. It goes, the story of Donkey Skin may be hard to believe, but as long as there are children, mothers, and grandmothers in this world, it will be fondly remembered by all. What? Interesting that he mentions no male family members there first of all it'll be fondly remembered and also it'll be maybe hard to believe so that actually leads me to another interesting point so marina warner you are would be familiar with very familiar with yes Yes, i've read much (laughs) for those of you who don't know she is a critical scholar of um, folklore and she writes that one of the chief dangers of this story is actually it's too hard to accept precisely because it belongs to a different order of reality or fantasy from the donkey skin disguise or the gold excrement. So basically all the other magical motifs because it is not impossible because it could actually happen and is known to have done so. It is when fairy tales coincide with experience that they begin to suffer from censoring rather than the other way around. So that's really interesting. Yes. Another reason that these stories may not have yes. come down to us is because, of course. Too real. Too fucking real, yeah. man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is a horrifying reality. Because there's no supernatural forces no. involved whatsoever. No. There's no Particularly magic. Particularly not in this story. In this Egyptian version, yeah. there isn't yeah, any exactly. magic. And the versions that we get, plenty of the versions that we get of this of story involve the supernatural. Yeah. And they involve magic. Yeah. And this this version, the the thing that Charles Perrault is talking about, the element of this story that he is saying is hard to believe is the fact that a father would want to marry his daughter. And, of course, yeah, like Maria Warner says, it's not that hard to believe at all. And that's the horror of this story. And that's the reason why it hasn't, why it's not alongside. Why it's been altered. Yeah, 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 yeah. And why Disney hasn't made a version of donkey skin or the princess in the suit of leather. Who wants to tell that story to their children? Well, Jim Henson did. And that's and I watched it. I actually find that really surprising. Because like I said, I, I never heard of this story until I was, you know, well into adulthood. Well, you didn't have the dark Jim Henson laden <laughs> childhood that I had. No, I didn't. No, <laughs> I did not. Um, but I do like that these cat skin heroines are very active and resourceful and particularly Julita. As we said, she doesn't have any magical intervention. She's acting entirely of her own accord. And like I was kind of saying before, while she is resistant and disobedient, she's ultimately the one who enshrines morality. She's upholding the moral code. And she's the one that teaches the lesson. Yeah. Yeah. Everything in this story happens because of women. So Julita is the one who disguises herself. Well, the mother is the one who sets the limits. Sets the limits. The old woman is the one who leads the father's eye to Julita, which, as we've discussed, is problematic. Because then she takes the blame for it later. Yes. (laughs) But still, he can say no. Yeah, that's right. He doesn't have to just He doesn't have to say, yeah, all right. He's a king. Yeah. Yeah. It's Julita who disguises herself and convinces everybody around her that she's this dilapidated old woman, tricks the queen and her entire staff and places herself in the middle of this new palace. She outsmarts the prince first by throwing him off the scent and telling him she lives in this land of paddles and ladles, then by convincing him to invite her father in after the wedding and letting her wear a disguise again. And it's the queen, as I was saying before, who decides that Julita is a worthy bride 
and implants that idea of marrying her into her sons in the first head. place in yeah. the first place yeah so even the king who in most other fairy tales is the one who controls everything even in the traditional cinderella story even the prince's actions of going out with the shoe to find cinderella are because the king tells him you need to find a wife he's still the ultimate orchestrator of events in this story he's not responsible for anything like we said, the catalyst is this old woman. Yeah. You know? So I guess that's a bit of a wrap-up, I suppose. While the Cinderella myth exists in various – and there's, like, a Chinese version. There's an Indian version. I think the Indian version is actually called something really blunt, like the princess whose father wanted to marry her or something. <laughs> it's That's not it exactly, but it's very not no, subtle. No spoilers. No spoilers. No that. spoilers. <laughs> So this, this is a story that exists in across cultures, but I think Jolita is the version which has this really awesome female character who has agency and independence. And I think that even though it's still problematic, like really a lot of what makes Jolita a good bride is still her physical beauty. And that's very problematically old school that's par for the course it is par for the course but also she is still intelligent and witty and we saw that in her character so despite its problems i think that she really challenges a lot of the typical messages that we receive about female passivity and duty and obedience from most fairy tales just every other fairy tale that there might be Yeah. yeah I would 100% agree. And I didn't know this version. Like, as yeah. I said, like, I, I do know versions of the donkey skin story, but this is one I hadn't heard before. Yeah. And it's got all the key ingredients, but they're worked out in a much different way where, as you say, she's the one that kind of comes up as the one with the smarts, yep. the one with the agency, the one who manipulates events to work for her mm. in the end, and the one who takes the step in the first place to even defy yeah. that expectation yep. of having to do what her father that's demands such, of her. That's just really, I think, the pivotal element of this story, you know. It is. But this is, in the donkey skin story, the idea that we get that it is that decision to just say, no, fuck yeah. you, I'm sorry. Yeah. And that's not what's going to work. Yeah. And that having that idea of stalling, because in the versions I know as well, there is that idea of like, right, I've got to figure out what to do. And so mm-hmm. I'm going to use my smarts, stall for time, make me these dresses. Yep. And that is what gives her the ability to sort of figure out what to do next, where to yeah. go. There's a lot of stalling in yeah. fairy tales on yeah. half of female characters, actually, now and I think it, about it. Yeah. Stalling for time is about all you can do. Yeah. That's about the only <laughs> option that you get. And in the Sapsorrow version, in stalling for time, that gives her enough time to have the creatures of the forest help her to build yeah. their coat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all the little papa animals. Do I sound like I'm just really trying to get everyone to watch the Jim Henson Look, version? Look, go and watch it. Please do. It's so good. Yeah. It also has French and Saunders as the um, <laughs> as the ugly stepsisters. Oh, my God. So really? That's it's awesome. pretty fucking amazing. <laughs> I highly recommend it. But it's stall- in that stalling for time is what gives her the time to get the animals to help her make the, the yeah. coat. Yeah. Because it takes... As with Julita, mm. it takes time yeah. to get yourself a disguise. Yeah. You know, she has that night, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's got to get done. Yeah, otherwise that soldier would have found her on the street. Without yeah. a disguise, it would have been a disaster. But a bing, bada boom. It's important to disguise. Yeah. But I think also that what happens in these stories is that, yes, we always have a reveal of the beautiful princess. 
And it does kind of bring us to a superficial ending where we do have the beauty that wins in the end. But in disguising that beauty throughout, there is also a message in there about the importance of intelligence. Yeah. Yeah, The importance (laughs) of intelligence over beauty. Yes. Because it's like, well, you might be beautiful, but this is not going to help you. Because that's ultimately what allows Julita to accomplish her goals in the end. Exactly. She's in disguise, relying on her wits. Precisely. She's planning. She's the one who's orchestrating the, you know what, I'm going to go to the party and check out this prince anyway. I'm going to take his ring and I'm going to put it in the cake and then he'll know it's me. Because also we have to remember that she can't just upfront, like, declare to him, hey, prince, you're awesome, I love you, let's get married. Because she has to make him think he wants her because that's how it works (laughs) yeah that's right you know you can't be that upfront as a woman and so maybe this is a part of her grand plan is to get all of these you know i'm going to be this amazing woman he's not going to be able to resist me because i can't just upfront be like hey prince let's do this thing let's get married but i really do think that's an important part of these stories yeah because i mean yes we do focus on the fact that yeah she's beautiful in the end and that's really great you know that works to everybody's advantage But also there's a moral message here that it's like, well, but you can't just rely on that. That's not going to get you far enough. Yeah. At some point you're going to have to use your brain as well. Yeah. So a a sweet riddle. Yeah, exactly. Come (laughs) with a sweet riddle, enhance your cooking skills. Um, (laughs) But I think that these are important stories because they do start to teach us that moral of like, well, don't just rely on being beautiful, honey. Yeah. It's not going to get you far yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, I, yeah, we should be telling these stories. Yeah. These are the fairy tales that we need to be That's telling. That's right. Exactly. Everyone should go and look up. And actually, if you are interested in reading lots of different versions of the Cinderella and the Catskin myths, I do recommend Maria Tatar's The Classic Fairy Tales. That has all of them in there. I think various translations, but the canonical English translations of all of these stories And you can then kind of read them, compare them side by side and see the similarities and the differences. And it's it's just fascinating to see how these stories evolve over time. And I find it amazing that we can have these stories appearing in Egypt and China and Germany and France. That's the joy of comparative mythology. And they have so many elements the same. It's fantastic. It is fantastic. We could talk about that for a long time. Unfortunately, we've run out of time for our episode. We won't talk about that anymore. So we're going to have to. That's all right. There'll be other times. There'll be other times. That's right. Yay! (laughs) Well, excellent. Well, in that case, what do we need to do? We need to tell people that they need to review us on iTunes. Yeah. So jump on iTunes. We're also on Stitcher and on SoundCloud if you want to subscribe. And of course, please leave us a review if you would like. A rating and review would be excellent. Please do. Also, you can always get on board to help support us financially, if you like, on (laughs) Patreon. Um, We are there and we do love our Patreon supporters. They're getting some special mini-sodes. That's right. We've got a mini-sode series that we're going to be updating regularly, as well as blooper reels. And, of course, you can get some awesome merch. So the little mini-sodes, just so you know that you can get on Patreon, we've called those Holes in history. history because they're little short episodes about characters and women and individuals that we find that we think are really, really fascinating, but we can't find enough information yeah. about them. It's really to it's warrant the, like, a whole episode. Frustration of, oh my God, this figure is so fascinating, but there's just not there's enough to fill up an hour episode. So we've decided we'll do mini apps instead. Yeah. So they're just little short bite-sized episodes. And if you enjoy listening to the longer version, <laughs> 
you're going to enjoy listening to those. Yeah. So they're Patreon only. So if you want to listen to those, get on board at Patreon. Yeah. And you can support us for as little as $2. $2. That's nothing. $2 and a mini-sode. <laughs> and blooper reels. And blooper reels. I am on board. <laughs> Good job, Alicia. Thank you. I've done my pitch. Yeah. And if you just want the merch, you're not up for a monthly subscription. We forgive you. We do have T-shirts and pins. But as little as $2. <laughs> on our Etsy store. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, we are at DeviantWomen or drop us a line at DeviantWomenPodcast at gmail.com. So I think that brings us to the end. As usual, thank you very much to Brendan for the sound and India Hui for the music. And we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.